Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Today we're joined by Max Kislovitz, who is the co-founder of Bala. Uh, so Max, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Bala, the company that you guys built, the stage you're at, and everything that went into getting to uh, getting you guys to where you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. So first, thanks for having me. Um, you know, Bala is really a design-led approach uh, to fitness accessories and equipment, the likes of which have historically been really utilitarian. So we talk about this sort of phenomenon that we've all experienced where you walk into any gym in the world and it feels a lot like any other gym in the world. And you know, when you think about the adjacencies in athleisure or boutique fitness, these are like thoughtfully designed, you know, fitness performance wear, or in the case of boutique fitness, really thoughtfully designed studios. And yet the products you're actually interacting with in those spaces are all, all black, hyper-masculine, really kind of intimidating. And so we've tried to bring a sort of fashionable, colorful design sensibility to this otherwise utilitarian space. Um, we started the business about four and a half years ago. We thought it would only ever be a side project. We literally launched it on Kickstarter. Uh, and four and a half years later, it's become sort of uh, my wife and uh, my full-time effort. No, I love that. And, and I like how you describe it in terms of like almost bringing this fashion and art sense into this product category that had been like traditionally just like boring, very masculine, et cetera. I mean, when I see your content, one, obviously the design packaging, all of it stands out. The the, the product itself, um, for our listeners who may not uh, be familiar with the product, it's like you have these different like armbands and arm weights and stuff like that, but there's like very smooth contours, like pastel sort of colors, um, really like a organic, like comfortable sort of design vibes and even like the digital and the creative around it it's almost like bringing high fashion to this category like i don't know i just seeing it i I like automatically get like vibes of like james terrell and like space age modern like all these cool sort of design themes so anyway i think it's really cool what you guys have done from from that side of thinking clearly that's something that's really captivated um you know a global or you know a, a national and now expanding to a global audience so my next question in terms of like one, one thing you mentioned is you guys started this out as a side project, right? So what did it look like in the early days before Kickstarter? Like what was the inception where you were like, okay, let's, uh, you know, let's even start spending time on the side working on this as a side project. Yeah, absolutely. So at the time uh, I had just started dating this woman named Natalie Holloway and we'd met at uh, an ad agency 
on the west side here in LA called 72 and Sunny. And agencies kind of tend to be anonymous because they're doing work, you know, on behalf of clients. But, you know, the folks that 72 worked with was like the Googles of the world, Coors Light, Jeep, Starbucks, right? And so we were a relatively small cog in this much bigger uh, sort of marketing wheel for all these massive global brands. And, you know, the burn rate was pretty high on, you know, just the the hours you'd work and, you know, the sort of client service-based deadline-oriented industry of advertising. And so when Nat and I had first started dating, uh, I think I had drunkenly said to her one night, what if, what if we quit and traveled together? And uh, I, we were very much still in the courtship phase. And shockingly, she kind of called my bluff and said, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And so before we knew it, we'd bought one-way tickets to Tokyo and ended up spending the next eight months traveling through India and Nepal and Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, etc. cetera. Uh, and it was this phenomenal trip, but it was actually on that trip when we were just about to kill one another. You know, It's like early stage couple spending 24 hours a day together. Uh, we said, let's go to a yoga class and burn off some steam. And the, the class itself ended up being far more meditative than we'd planned. Like, so we wanted to kind of you know, really relieve stress. And it ended up being sort of stressful, you know, the degree to which it was unsatisfying. So it was after that class where we were like, you know, how could we have made that more difficult, right? Like class-based fitness is on the rise. People will get off work at 6 p.m. They'll only be able to go to the 6.15 class down the street. What if that's an entry-level class? And what if they want to work harder than that? And we're like, the, the solution existed in wrist and ankle weights already, right? Like they were ubiquitous in the 80s. They were very on trend for the sort of style of 80s aerobics and jazzercise, but they'd fa- sort of fallen off uh, the earth, right? They'd like the collective consciousness forgot about wrist and ankle weights. So that was like the inception moment where we said, what if we redesigned and reintroduced this product that had real functional value but had real design deficiencies. So they were neoprene, so they would absorb sweat and smell bad. They were filled with iron filing, so you couldn't actually tighten them enough. They would still slide around your wrist. Um, And so we sort of said, hey, this is a rare opportunity to uh, reinvent something people were familiar with already, but everyone stopped using, which is a, it's kind of a terrible, thesis for starting a company, but we had enough time on our hands that we could, you know, really dedicate design time to sketching it. I, you know, finding folks to render it for us, starting to reach out to factory contacts, etc. The thing I love about that is, well, first of all, the fact that you were able to take a vacation and just like spend time traveling the world. I think that's like a really awesome thing because it shows you can draw inspiration from those sort of experiences. And I think a lot of times like people just get caught up, you know, work, work, work. And one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is just like, how do you align your personal interests, the things that make you feel most like fulfilled with your career path of things and the projects that you're working on? So just to hear how that came about organically, um, you know, that's more proof of like those sort of circumstances leading to, to these sort of outcomes where you know, you and what you want to create is very aligned with the lifestyle that you like to live with the people that you like doing it with all that sort of thing. Um, But my question in terms of like your guys specific background, so you guys were both in the agency world, but like, what were your specific skill sets when you were working in agency land? Were you 
doing similar things? Were you doing different things? Were you, were there specific sub niches that you were like really, really good at? Or like, what were your core competencies, I guess, core competencies, I guess you could say in when you were working at the agency? Totally. So without uh, going down a rabbit hole, like agencies generally are divided up into four disciplines. There's strategy, there's creative, there's production, and there's account management. Natalie and I both had more of an account management orientation. I worked in new business Nat worked at like as an account person. Uh, you know, the core competency is like a little bit of sort of business acumen across all the competencies, but you're not actually responsible for any of them. So, you know, if you're in the agency, you know, the idea that an account person could be creative is like is laughable, right? But what we did do was like participate in every discipline and we'd had a you know not even just a a front seat from a spectator's point of view it's like you're involved in the conversations and you're advocating for the creative or you know the 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 strategy of a particular campaign to the client right and so you're a little bit of a conduit between each department um and i think actually that positioning really helped us with bala because Yes, we had like a creative point of view. We we had a sort of inclination for what could be disruptive from like a brand positioning perspective. But we also had more of like a, a kind of tried and true business background. So it wasn't creativity uh, sort of agnostic of, you know, the realities of bringing it to life from a, you know, investment perspective. Got it. No, that makes a ton of sense. And just having that exposure, seeing different, you know, seeing the creative process that's happening across brands, seeing all the different um, types of companies that are running all these different sorts of creative projects and bringing them to life. Like clearly you're not, you know, you're picking up, you're absorbing some of that ethos and then having the operational acumen, I guess, start start to put in place. So as we move forward a little bit, um, you guys are together, you identify a problem, you think there's a space that you can start to disrupt. Uh, and you mentioned you started going to Kickstarter, right? So like, what was like what was that process like in terms of saying like okay this is going to be real and we're going to like spin up our own project put this on kickstarter like what what happened then yeah totally so i think that like given this simplicity of the idea it was hard to have a real conviction about it right like when you think of something novel and new it's like god that's the world's best idea but when you think about reprising something sort of old and tired, like wrist and ankle weights, like it felt, it felt viable. And there were like some good aspects of the idea going for it, but it was hard to sort of like bet the farm on this idea, you know, like would people be interested? Would they fundamentally care? So there wasn't like a bravado at the outset about like, we're going to change the world. I, I, I think we've had some of those revelations since in terms of disrupting this ultra serious industry. But at the time we were like, how do we both test the idea and raise the $40,000 we needed to fund the first production run? And Kickstarter was kind of the perfect solution for that. Like we would get real market feedback if there was interest in what's effectively pre-ordering the product. Like, could it be viable in market? And then- let's raise the money as well because we didn't have another kind of mechanism to do so. So um, we ultimately raised, I believe it was like $55,000 um, on Kickstarter, which was enough to fund the first production run of um, 3000 units of Bala Bangles that were 
at the time delivered to our second story walk up in Brooklyn. So the logistics associated with shipping weights wasn't wasn't something we thought through at the time. Um, but you know, it was effectively six thousand pounds of wrist and ankle weights that we had in our apartment in Brooklyn. No, that that's a really good point in terms of the logistics. I mean, during like the pandemic, I think a lot of people order. I'm sure you, it, this was a massive. Uh, boon for your guys's business but like even myself like I ordered weights and I, I remember the Amazon lady like coming up to my doorstep I'd ordered like some kettlebells and she comes up I'm like oh my god I'm so sorry like let me come out and help you bring those in you know uh, they're heavy right um, but you guys at least aren't aren't at the aren't at the high end of the spectrum in terms of weight so that's better but what are some of the um, well actually before we get there so in terms of when you guys, uh, you know, you're you're running this first production run on Kickstarter, um, how did it turn out, right? Like from the design to the actual product you received, like you were saying, like taking a bed and making, you know, three thousand, going from zero to like call it three thousand units, right? Like that, that's definitely, um, you know, it has to feel like you're jumping in the deep end a little bit there. So how how did you have conviction that like this was the product that you wanted to? you were cool with making that first production run and, and how did it turn out? Yeah. So the Kickstarter campaign, I think was the middle of 2017, um, just to put a kind of timestamp on it. Um, and at the time we had a prototype of what we knew that we'd wanted it to look like. And, and that prototype was really developed from a series of subsequent sketches where we get like closer and closer to what we wanted it to look like. A lot of, uh, frankly, like MacGyvering other products that we had. So like cutting up materials and and swatches of things um, as reference. Um, and then ultimately having somebody render it in 3D with like the appropriate sort of like weight spec. So it's like, hey, volumetrically, it's going to be this big. It's this, it's made with steel bars, like it's going to equal one pound. And that was kind of the target. So we had to kind of right size the design to achieve that. Um, the Kickstarter campaign was then, you know, kind of composed with that prototype. So we'd, we had a model friend here in LA that, uh, allowed us to, to shoot her wearing the bangles, doing a series of activities. We wrote all the campaign descriptors and really just kind of took it one step at a time. I, I will say that because our background wasn't in product development, like we, we didn't really know what what we didn't know, right? And there's this anecdote about like, you may not know how to sell your car on Craigslist, but you know how to clean your car. And once you've cleaned your car, you know how to take photos of it. And once you've taken photos of it, you can figure out how to upload them, right? And even if you kind of get stuck at each step, your willingness to take those steps and to be stuck and still figure them out is really what's critical here. And so we just embraced this incredibly iterative process where we mostly didn't know what we were doing, but we were gonna figure it out anyway. And so we ultimately launched on Kickstarter and Kickstarter used to be this platform where people could sketch an idea on a piece of paper and take a picture of that piece of paper and put it on it, people would invest in it. But you know, now there's like a heavy studio component of just like smaller shops launching products on Kickstarter that had you know all the advantages from a team perspective. So we were certainly naive about uh, those dynamics and we launched it without any other marketing support. I mean, we effectively just reached out to everyone we knew and thankfully we got over the line with it, but it was really uh, the result of this 
kind of like iterative imperfect process that got us there. Awesome. And then what was the, uh, what was like, so you have these 3000 units, right? Were, were they all like pre-sold out with Kickstarter or were, did you actually have inventory that you needed to like sell through at that point? What, what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, Kickstarter essentially hedged our personal bet, right? Like we, we weren't out of pocket for it. We'd obviously spend whatever little money we had on the prototype. Um, but you know, the, uh, Kickstarter campaign, uh, the goal was essentially what we needed to fund the first production run with the factory MOQ. Um, and it was a 3000 unit minimum. And, you know, at the time we didn't even know the degree to which we could negotiate minimums, uh, and you know, how much flexibility we had there, but I think we had pre-sold, let's call it a third of those. Um, and then, you know, launched a, a Shopify store uh, and started taking orders from from retailers. And I think early days, just as we embraced this kind of like iterative experimental process on Kickstarter, we did the same thing on the brand side. And so, you know, we we took like more sort of traditional kind of expected fitness images, but then we also like photographed people wearing bala bangles while also wearing heels. And what we saw was actually that tension and leaning into sort of fashion uh, was way more resonant um, than, you know, somebody doing, uh, you know, uh, their, their yoga practice in, in Bengals. And so that's kind of the early uh, revelation associated with, you know, the brand's trajectory. Um, and yeah, we started taking orders and selling through the remaining 2000 unit balance. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's really cool. Just in terms of the context that that sets, like, so you have the Kickstarter that funds the production run, you're able to, you know, sell a thousand of those units on Kickstarter, you have 2000 left. And now you start opening up some of your D2C channel, you spin up your, your Shopify store, as well as, um, you know, doing some of those other initiatives and being able to start owning your own creative and really creating the brand uh, and the digital digital brand now that that is Bala. So why don't you walk me through the next phase, which is, you know, where do you go between there when you've got your first production run to uh, Shark Tank? And, you know, I'll let you talk a little bit about it, but you guys are one of the, you know, the most amazing Shark Tank stores where all the sharks wanted to get in on your deal and all of that. But why don't you walk me through, um, you know, the first batch of sales, like how many orders cycles were you going through? Like how long was it before you show up on on shark tank yeah totally so you know from the time the kickstarter campaign was successfully funded to the time we started shipping product it was probably a year that went by um, and i think that people uh certainly we didn't understand how long product development truly takes especially when we were being more like qualitatively directive about how to change things it wasn't like we were sending back you know stp files and like saying like here are the adjustments we've made as it relates to the the 3D file and the like corresponding materials. We were kind of like, could it be a little bit more round and, and a little bit more purple, right? Um, and so it took a long time. So the sort of dozen prototypes we went through took about a year um, before we were finally happy with the finished product. Um, and so we started shipping in mid-2018 and we actually found there to be like just a really kind of positive reception to the product. So we started going to trade shows and people would, there's like a kind of a tactility to the silicone overmold we use that feels really kind of supple and luxurious. 
So people would reach for it and really kind of drawn to it. And then when you said, hey, this is a new school wrist weight and they put it on, there was this like disproportionate, joyous reaction. You know, people were like, oh my God, I absolutely love this. And we found that there was just that kind of phenomenon in a bunch of different channels. So one of the early like theses of Bala was that if, you know, 20 people were in a yoga class and one person was wearing them, that 19 others would take notice of it. And that same thing started happening on social where people would, you know, take photos of themselves wearing the bangles post-workout and all their friends would be like, well, what is that thing? So we we found a lot of like early organic sort of movement on social. And in fact, we had two buyers, one from Goop, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's company, and then the other from Free People, the Urban Outfitter-owned company, uh, that were early adopters from a retail perspective. And so rather than be like, we're a D2C business, uh, you know, we got to own the customer relationship. We said, hey, for a brand that folks don't otherwise know, uh, being in retail add instant credibility and instant discoverability to the brand. And by the way, it's not paying for, you know, acquisition because we don't have any money. We've thrown it all at production. Instead, they're paying us, albeit maybe a lesser margin than we would enjoy uh, on our dot com to, to, you know, project it to the world. And so we kind of embrace this retail D2C, Amazon, omni-channel model really early and found that it was this very virtuous ecosystem. But essentially from the launch of the product in mid-2018 through our eventual Shark Tank appearance in early 2020, we were just enjoying like slow sort of sustainable growth. You know, I think we went from about 400K in 2018, our first year, to 2 million in 2019. Um, and so their retailers were coming on board. We'd get more and more traffic on Amazon and the dot com. And there was like the word was starting to get out. So we would occasionally be, be written about in publications. We would see influencers talk about uh, Bala, you know, trainers, celebrities. There was a lot of like early holy shit moments with, you know, folks that we would never otherwise expect to be sort of like you know, donning Bala Bengals, um, absolutely loving them. So that was kind of uh, the pre-Shark Tank days. No, the thing I really like about what you said was for, because of the form of the product and the nature of it and the situations in which people wear it, that kind of fed the cycle. So your guys's rationale was let's definitely go for retail. That gives us more eyeballs. That give, That puts us on more, you know, arms and ankles in more yoga classes in more social media sort of settings where our product by nature is recognizable, right? There's certain products, whether you're D2C or whatever, that just aren't so photogenic and so immediately recognizable. So understanding that very quickly, understanding that the form factor was a major differentiator for you. You're almost like a fashion accessory, a fashion fitness accessory, if you will, uh, to really be able to start catapulting that growth. I think that's a really important thing to be able to pick up on. Um, so that takes us up to, so you guys are kind of doing this really sustainable, organic growth between a mix of You've done your Kickstarter. Now you're doing retail as well as some D 2 C stuff. Um, and then, so what? Why don't you tell us about Shark Tank? How did you guys get the call? What was, um, you know, what made you say, 
hell yeah, let's do this. And then what was the experience like when you guys actually went into uh, record and get the deal done? Yeah, totally. So I think that everyone and their mother will tell you to go on Shark Tank the second you start a company. Uh, it's just this thing that happens. Um, and actually, uh, a close friend of our family said that to us. And uh, not long like after that, Natalie applied. And actually, we got fairly deep into the you know, casting process before we got a call um, when we were expecting to fly from New York to LA to tape the following week. And they said, you know, we can't tell you why it was a closed door meeting, but we've decided that, you know, it's not the right time. And so it's, it's sort of like getting broken up with. And, you know, what they'd said instead, which is very much like someone saying, hey, maybe we'll get back together. They said, we'll call you next year. And we're like, no, you're not. But, you know, sure enough, they did. So it was actually a year later that they called us and we made it all the way through and then ultimately got the opportunity to pitch the Sharks. Um, and the show is very accurate. Uh, the experience of the show is accurate to how it's portrayed in film, right? There's no informal interaction with the Sharks. There's no uh, rehearsal. You just kind of go down uh, in this incredibly terrifying sort of moment of walking down the tank and you pitch the sharks and then there is a kind of business negotiation that follows. So, um, you know, you, you spend more like 45 minutes to an hour arguing for the viability of your business. And ultimately um, we had all five sharks participating in, uh, in the deal. Everybody had offers. There was like a hell of a lot of, sort of um, amazingly nerve wracking banter. Uh, and then we ultimately made a deal with Mark Cuban and Maria Sharapova, who was our guest shark at the time. What? Uh, no, I remember, I, I remember seeing the episode. Um, and I think there was a lot of like chat going on between you and Natalie, like as, uh, as the deals were like getting thrown on the table. So what were, what were you guys talking about, like whispering to each other? Um, and how are you thinking about your decision-making when you had all those potential deals on the table? Like what were, what were the key drivers for you for wanting to work with Mark and Maria? And what were some of the other dynamics going on uh, at that time? Yeah, so we did as much scenario planning as we possibly could. So we literally had friends come over uh, in the week before we pitched the Sharks and just said, pepper us with questions. And, you know, if you've watched the show, there are probably a dozen questions that are regularly asked. What was shocking when we were actually there was that, you know, there were a lot more technical questions that are ever you know, shown on the show. And so we felt uh, especially intimidated by, you know, these five ridiculously wealthy people um, peppering us with questions. And, and frankly, they're also like all talking to you at once, right? Like, it's difficult to have a conversation. What were some of the technical things that they asked? Because yeah, like, because clearly you guys go in there for like an hour, and then they edit it down. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. So look, like, you know, if now they don't seem as technical at the time. Like we were asked about factoring, which is like financing PO financing POs that have been written already. So like inventory financing and it, you know, for us at the time, like we were like, we either have products sitting in our apartment or we don't have product. Right. And we can, we either have the cash to order new product or we don't like everything was really binary. Um, and so it just gets a, a few layers deeper than the show really portrays because they're trying to, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but presumably they're trying to make like entrepreneurship 
like accessible and understandable to a really broad audience. Um, and so Nat and I were just, we did a bunch of scenario planning, but then, you know, plans can go to shit, right? So when we were getting offers from these folks that we had watched, you know, we were like real Shark Tank enthusiasts. We'd watched every episode for the 10 years prior. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have like Damon talking to you, making you a deal and telling you about the value that he could add to your company. You know, it's a it's a pretty intimidating position to be in. And so we tried to just slow play our hand and stick to, you know, the scenarios that we'd outlined. And they actually spoke amongst one another quite a bit as Nat and I were talking. So we didn't have to ask them to sort of talk ourselves, which comes with some inherent risk. And when they finally ceded the floor to us, we were able to kind of present back the scenario that we, we would be happy with, which was, you know, in the event that we had two sharks uh, involved, we would do a deal for 30% for 900K. Um, and ultimately, Mark sort of stole Maria from Lori, and they were, you know, like, were, were down. And so I think we came in looking for uh, 400K investment and left with 900. Obviously, we've given up more of the company, but I will say that there's so many intangibles associated with that deal. You know, like Maria has been in photo shoots for us. Mark spoke with us at a South by South South by Southwest panel earlier this year. Um, obviously, there's incredible media value associated with the show. So it really sort of propelled us to the next level. So where in 2019, we did 2 million in sales. In 2020, we did 16. So it was like kind of an 8x relative to the prior year. Wow, that's, um, you know, they always talk about the Shark Tank effect, but that's that's awesome to hear in terms of, A, just being able to get a deal done and be in a situation where you kind of had your pick of who you wanted to work with. And the fact that Maria Sharapova happened to be on, maybe that's why they had you waiting. Maybe maybe they, they knew deep down and they were like, oh, let's just wait till uh, we have the right sharks on the, on the table for these guys. But so why don't... And, the other reason we're really excited to be able to have this conversation is I think one thing that you've done that resonates with myself, with a lot of other entrepreneurs who are going to be listening in here is like what you were saying is like, you were like, we're building this business, we're putting in the capital that we have, we are once we sell out, then we're going to order more and we're going to keep doing it like this, right? Um, so what did, when, when you go from, you know, the two you were at to 16, what were what were some of the growing pains that you went through? How did that year go? Was it um, was it easy for you guys to handle, or was there uh, a lot that you had to figure out on the operations side of things? Yeah, no, I think um, you know as a business scales, uh, it also scales in complexity, um, and so you know the really simplistic way we were doing things early days just didn't you know, didn't scale. And so 2020 was absolutely wild. Um, obviously, you know, Bala as a fitness brand sort of benefited from, uh, you know, the fitness boom in the context of the pandemic where folks were trying to stay uh, fit from home. Um, and so, you know, what it really looked like was like my wife, myself, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law living in a house together, trying to run this business um, when we were frankly like terrified to leave our homes, right? And so 
Um, we didn't otherwise have a 3PL um, ahead of Shark Tank. And so we spent the first two weeks uh, after the Shark Tank airing sending all those orders out. And so we ultimately ended up shipping 75,000 units of Bala Bengals ourselves by hand, like lifetime, right? So we waited a long time to have a 3PL. You know, we didn't actually run a single paid ad until December of 2020. So that $16 million year was entirely organic. We barely sent emails, like all the things that D2C brands do as table stakes, like we had not yet done, right? Um, which was an amazing sort of gift on the one hand, but um, it also came with its own like kind of challenges and complexity when we were ultimately ready to start doing those things. Um, and so, um, man, what were the challenges? Uh, <laughs> I think there was, you know, supply chain delays were wild at the time and we were sold out for probably 35 to 40% of the year. Um, and so there's, um, there's obviously like a romance associated with scale, but it's also really capital intensive to scale. So we would get these kind of inbound POs from major retailers and they'd want $500,000 worth of product, right? Or a million dollars worth of product. And the, the turn from needing to, uh, like, you know, pay your suppliers the deposit for that product and then ultimately receiving the product being able to ship it to the retailer and then the net terms that the big the big folks have like sometimes that could be you know 6 plus months right so you need to have that cash for those 6 months and so there was just a really steep learning curve about like funding the success the business was enjoying which was incredibly stressful it's like some days we'd have like 10 bucks in the bank and the next day we'd have like 2 million dollars in the bank and it like and it literally you know, the ebbs and flows were so dramatic. So it was pretty wild keeping up. And the other thing is that through 2020, it was just five people. So it's myself, my wife, my two sister-in-laws and their childhood friend, because we didn't know if the bottom was just going to like fall out beneath us, right? Like we had no idea how sustainable the business would be. And we were really learning on the fly. So there was a a real, we were really conservative about hiring or spending money um, because we just uh, we'd felt like we were um, dreaming in, in a in a big way, and that you know what happens when we woke up. So uh, a lot of challenges. You could tell I'm like <laughs> I'm like shaking. I'm like thinking back to just how wild those times were. But um, yeah, no, absolutely, and I think what you know, what you were saying just about like the whole financing component of these businesses is like, that's one of the trickiest parts. Cause now you're, you're dealing with the, uh, you know, the logistics of bringing in product, matching it to orders. And then you guys are the ones, uh, that have to make sure that like you're saying, like, you don't want a situation where you're like, Oh, wait a minute, we don't have the money to finance that product. So we can't fulfill this order and all that sort of thing. So, um, but that leads me to my next point, which is the fact that since you guys have done that, since you guys have built this brand, it's really opened up all these sort of opportunities. So what I love about what you guys have done, you started with a real like marquee flagship product that's super recognizable. And that kind of got you into in terms of like building the brand into everyone's 
uh, households onto their Instagram feeds into major retailers. I mean, I, I even remember, I think I bought some Bala bands at like Anthropology. You guys sell there, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so like you guys have, had, have done that amazingly. And now from there, you're able to start to build out all these other experience and invest in all these other experiences of the brand um, rather than saying, oh, let's just stick to this one thing, which I think is a very exciting point for all of businesses. Once you set, once you've grown up, you've, uh, you've figured out those operational hurdles that we kind of talked about. And now you're like, okay, now let's start investing in new products, new offerings, new opportunities, different ways to grow the brand. So what were some of the first new initiatives that you guys decided to take on? Yeah, I think like one of the one of the big ones, which is maybe less of an initiative, but is kind of the crux of our strategy was product diversification. So, you know, with Bengals, there were some accidental kind of innovations, like we'd introduced silicone to this space that was just traditionally like kind of like you know steel like and 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 TPE and just like these materials that didn't actually feel all that premium or all that luxurious and so you know we started looking around and asking ourselves like really simple sort of philosophical questions like why do all dumbbells look the same or you know is there a better form factor for some of the things that exists already so we launched what we call the power ring, which is effectively a weighted steering wheel, which is just a really ergonomic alternative to a kettlebell or a dumbbell. And in the case of a dumbbell, it's not designed to be held with both hands when a mat-based workout calls for a weighted prop. So it's like, there's all these modalities that have sort of like, you know, become really popular over the last 20 years or so, but the equipment hasn't kept pace. So we've sort of said, how do we design products with premium materials with beautiful design, but that are also designed in a really nuanced way to accommodate the kinds of workouts people are doing today. And so that became sort of the core strategy is like, let's bollify everything, right? Like let's invent new products, but that let's also introduce meaningful improvements on existing products. And that was the sort of the uh, sort of paradigm shift from we're a single products company to we can be sort of the Lululemon of, you know, fitness equipment and accessories, right? Like we can bring a Glossier sensibility to this super serious sort of like CrossFit centric fitness space. Um, and we can do it through beautiful product and a playful, irreverent brand. And so then the initiatives that you were alluding to are the things that we feel like start to kind of amplify and scale the brand really meaningfully on the strength of brand and product. And so we launched a pop-up in Soho in Manhattan. Um, it's actually live through the end of the month. It was a six-month pop-up. It's right on Spring, Spring Street, just across from Aloe Yoga and adjacent to uh, the, the Nike flagship down there on Broadway. Um, we are expanding internationally by way of distributors. Um, we have launched Balasize, which is our content uh, platform at balasize.com, which is sort of primarily a mechanism to educate folks on how to use Bala products, because even if they're familiar, you know, fitness is one of these things that left to your own devices, you know, you might spend 10 minutes doing the things you know, and then you're like, but I'd intended on working out for 30. What do I do with the remaining 20? And so we wanted to make it as easy for folks as possible to do. So 
Um, you know, these are things that just kind of brought in the funnel uh, and keep folks in the ecosystem. But, but but more importantly, like we're excited about this potential to really destigmatize this the space and make it more inclusive and kind of accessible uh, and inspirational rather than exclusive and intimidating and uh, you know cost prohibitive. So um, all of the things that we get excited about at a brand level are those things that we feel like you know, sort of deliver on that, like, bigger, broader mission. And yeah, I, I think when you talk about like, that broader mission, and like bringing everything together, what really like stands out in um, the way I think about it is, if you had been starting your business called in like 2018, and you were like, I just want to start a fitness brand, I want to start another like athleisure brand, like an aloe yoga or like a Lululemon, it would be like really, really hard to like enter the market. So what's really cool is the fact that through creating a totally different product in an adjacent space in a place that hadn't been disrupted, all of a sudden, you've been able to come in be able to capture that same like mind share and build up that same sort of brand equity as some of these like really major players in the fitness space. And then you start to roll out your own versions and your own takes on fitness classes, on studios, on products and all these other things where all of a sudden, like you, like if you guys wanted, for example, I don't, I don't know if this is in the roadmap, but like if you were launching more apparel or all these other things, like you would be able to capture market share there, which I think is so fascinating because had you just started as like another athleisure company, it would be a really hard road to scale to this sort of, um, you know, brand that you've been able to build. Totally. It's funny because we get that question a lot of like, you know, who do you see as your competitors? And, you know, frankly, there aren't there's really nobody trying to like blur the lines in the same way that we are, but you know, the point of entry matters, right? Like, so there are, there are big mega brands that could start leaning into our space and, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'd be successful at it, but you know, there is an inauthenticity to that approach. And I think that they're, you know, again, we've talked about kind of the Genesis story. It's like, we didn't realize how massive the opportunity was kind of hiding in plain sight. Uh, we sort of tripped over it, but we really do think that, you know, fitness accessories and equipment and the products you're actually working out with should be as beautiful and elevated as the their environment or, you know, what you're wearing whilst doing the, those activities. And so that's what we're super psyched to, to kind of keep building. Cool. And then why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, funding, right? Like at this stage, you guys have done upwards of 50 mil in um, revenue with only literally only taking money from Shark Tank, which is which is insane. It just goes to show if you and the thing that you had mentioned about like you guys in the early days, you guys weren't even advertising this. This was all organic growth, some Shark Tank um, publicity, some juice from Shark Tank, some tailwinds from the pandemic. and But really, it was building a good product and building an organic brand with a creative that really told that brand narrative. And it was you were able to like really capture something um, with the public. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your funding plans moving forward and how you're thinking about continuing to invest in, in your own business as you grow? Yeah, totally. So, you know, uh, if we flash all the way back to the beginning, because we needed to sell one pair of bangles in order to buy two, sell two to buy four, you know, we had to be ridiculously efficient. Uh, and it's probably why we did a lot of things 
the wrong way or not at all, right? Um, because you know, unit economics needed to make sense. And uh, as the side project, it was something that, you know, the side project we'd intended it to be. Um, we just remained as conservative and efficient uh, for as long as we possibly could. I think now we're at uh, a point at which we've we've proven product market fit. And I would even add to that, you know, we've proven product brand and market fit. Um, and we think there's a unique, a unique opportunity to make Bala, you know, the next great global fitness brand. So we have decided to raise some money after having, you mentioned it, but uh, north of $50 million in lifetime sales with the 900K we'd received on Shark Tank. Uh, and so, so now we're looking for folks to to come on board and help us get to the next stratosphere. Um, and we've got quite a few exciting things we're working on, you know, uh, continuing to expand into, into new products, particularly that th those that helps kind of expand the total addressable market. Uh, we are expanding internationally. So we've identified distributors in some major markets as well. Um, and then we have some sort of IRL experience uh, thoughts as well. So, you know, there's a lot of exciting things happening at Bala and we're, you know, we kind of just kicked off a fundraise all of 48 hours ago. I mean, the thing that's really exciting about this space is I think traditionally, right, um, if you think about businesses, especially the ones that go and raise VC, it's like you have to have a really big idea and then you start uh, you know, right out of the gates, you're like raising venture, you're building things up and going after a really big opportunity. But like the fitness market and the market you're in is a massive opportunity, right? Like when you think of all the different parts of it, whether it's the physical products that you're using, which you guys have like really started to dominate that space, whether it's the apparel component, whether it's the the classes component, the studios component, the beverages come like it's a massive massive industry and what i think is like really exciting about the position that you guys are in is the fact that you started with a, a flagship product you built out a business sustainably where you you weren't spending this wasn't just like lighting on money money on fire to build the business it was like growing it very organically and now you're in a real position with experience with brand to start tackling a really really massive fitness industry um, with all of that reputation, with all that cash that comes with everything that you've built so far. So I think you guys are in a really exciting um, position. And so for our listeners who might want to keep up with you as well as Bala as you continue on this journey, where can we find you? Um, are you on you know Twitter, LinkedIn, socials? Like, w w Just shout it out. Yeah, totally. So Bala is shopbala.com. Uh, Bala size is either shopbala.com slash Bala size or Bala size.com. Um, I probably am most, uh, reachable via LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, at M Um, and yeah, uh, uh, you know, get in touch. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Max. It was awesome hearing about you guys and we can't wait to run it back as you guys continue to grow and scale and release all your exciting new products. Awesome. Thanks for having me.